Good morning. I'm reading from John chapter 4, verses 46 to 54. Then he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had changed the water into wine. Now there was a royal official whose son lay ill in Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went and begged him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my little boy dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started on his way. As he was going down, his slaves met him and told him that his child was alive. So he asked them the hour when he began to recover, and they said to him, Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him. The father realised that this was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did after coming from Judea to Galilee. So the royal official's son, healing thereof from John's gospel. The thing is, you don't often hear sermons on this story probably because it's so similar to the uh, much more well-known and more often preached on story of the healing of the centurion's servant that we find in both Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7. But our readings uh, this year through the Gospel of John bring us this week with Jesus back to Cana, uh, so he's had his, his trip to Jerusalem and the, the cleansing of the temple. Uh, he's had his excursions through Samaria. And now we find ourselves back at the site of the first of the seven signs of John's gospel. We're back where Jesus turned water into wine. Last time he was here, we had this miracle at the wedding with the author declaring that this was the first of Jesus' significant actions, the first of the signs Jesus did, pointing to the nature of his ministry and mission. And so a few chapters later, we circle back after this trip down to Jerusalem and back through Samaria, back to Cana, and here we find uh, the declaration of the second of these signs, these seven signs that we get in John's Gospel. And this time we're told it's not water into wine, but the healing of the royal official's son. So we're invited to begin to perhaps join the dots between the water into wine at the wedding and the healing of the royal official's son, both taking place in Cana. But beyond the geography, there are also other parallels between uh, today's story and the first sign given at the wedding. If you remember, on both occasions, someone approaches Jesus uninvited and asks him to sort out a problem. At the wedding, it's uh, a shortage of wine. And in today's story, it's a sick child. And on both occasions, Jesus comes across as rather ambivalent to the request. It's almost like Jesus is getting annoyed that people keep thinking he's just going to pull another solution out of his hat on demand. 
And of course, on both occasions, he does, in the end, resolve the issue. But the way John's gospel reports his reactions, it feels like there's something more going on here than Jesus simply solving a wine crisis or making a sick child better. And of course, that's exactly what John, the author of this gospel, is wanting to achieve. John's gospel constantly invites its readers to dig deeper, to go beyond the obvious, to explore the deeper significance of the events it narrates. That's kind of John's MO. We will meet it again and again. I'm telling you a story. Do you get the significance? Other gospels are a little bit more, I'm telling you a story. Do you believe it? John is always, no, let's dig deeper. Let's get a bit literary. Let's get a bit theological. Let's get a bit mystical. That's the way John's gospel works. And this is why the author of this gospel describes both the water into wine and the healing of the official son as being signs. These stories point to something beyond themselves. The point is not that Jesus does miracles. It's not even that people should believe in Jesus because he's a miracle worker. Rather, these stories point to the underlying meaning of the incarnation, what it means to declare that Jesus is God in human form. They invite us to contemplate what exactly it might mean for Jesus to be the word of God made flesh as a gift of good news for the world. They invite us to dig deeper. So when we meet Jesus getting frustrated that people are asking him for another miracle, we can hear the author of this gospel offering Jesus's words to us, inviting us to go deeper than the surface significance to discover the underlying sign of the kingdom that is being brought out in a, a rather simple story of a healing of a child. So in the case of water into wine, which we looked at a few weeks ago, a sermon on the website if you missed it, the miracle we saw was a sign of God's abundance, of the joyfully overflowing love of God that transforms shame into honour and overwhelms disgrace with grace. And so also in the case of the royal official's son, we are also therefore asked to seek the underlying meaning, to explore what the story of this healing might reveal to us about the love of God made flesh in Jesus. The point of this story is not, I'll say it again, that Jesus heals. Nor is it that Jesus can do miracles at a distance, clever Jesus. Rather, this sign is an exploration of the significance of the prologue statement, that in Jesus was life, and the life was the light of all people. Do you remember that from the prologue, chapter one, verse four? When I was preaching on the prologue before Christmas, I think I said at the time that, in a sense, the first chapter, the, the, the famous prologue of the gospel, is kind of the whole of the gospel summed up in a series of theological statements. What that means is that everything that follows throughout the gospel 
is kind of a drawing out in illustrative form of the theological principles that we found in the prologue. And this theme of life as a gift from God given through Jesus that we meet in the prologue in Jesus was life and the life was the light of all people. That, that programmatic statement from verse 4 of this gospel is something that the gospel returns to time and again. We get it in our passage today, but we also find it in other passages as well. Um, we've already met it in uh, John 3.16, possibly the most famous verse in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. We come back to it again in John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus is speaking of himself as the good shepherd who came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And we even find it in the very last verses of the gospel, which tell us, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God, and through believing you may have life in his name. The end of the gospel. I could go on, there are other examples, but you get the idea. This idea that through Jesus comes a quality of life, life eternal, life abundant, is something that is introduced in the fourth verse and it rolls through the gospel, coming out again and again and again. And we meet it here in the healing of the royal official's son, here we find Jesus speaking a word of life. And as he speaks, new life itself comes into being at the very moment that he speaks it. Did you notice when the royal official eventually gets back home again and he inquires, he's told, you know, his son's got better and he finds out exactly when it happened. And we're told, well, it was exactly the moment that Jesus spoke. Jesus speaks life, life happens as he speaks. This is not accidental. This is a literary echo. It's an echo of the creation story from the book of Genesis. John's gospel is full of echoes of Genesis. Jesus is here taking his place as the word of God through whom all things come into being. It's the prologue again. Chapter one, verses three to four. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Here we have Jesus, the word of God, speaking life and life taking shape as he speaks, because John wants us to realize Jesus is the life-giving word of God, spoken to a broken, hurting, and dying world. And this healing of this young boy is therefore a sign of God's intent to bring life to the world through Jesus, to create life and light in the lives of human beings banishing the fear of death and the deeds of darkness that blight the human experience. That's the theological point that this story wants us to grasp. So what do we know about this young man, other than the fact that he's sick and he gets better? Well, we're told his father was a royal official living in 
Capernaum. And this places him as a servant of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great, whose royal palace was on the shores of Lake Galilee at Tiberias. So we can now realize that the family of this sick young man was therefore a family of high social status. It was a family of privilege. We're told that it was a family that had its own servants. As the royal official is returning home, some of his servants come to meet him. This is a man of status. He owns people. And whilst it is true that sickness and death can strike any household at any time, it was also as true back then as it is now that on the whole, the better off tended to enjoy healthier and longer lives. A royal official of the court of Herod would not have expected his son to get ill and die. Of course, this is in stark contrast to those in that region who were eking out their living as peasant farmers, for whom child mortality was surely something to be expected as just part of their experience of family life. So when this rich royal official's son falls seriously ill, he is at his wit's end. This is not the way it is supposed to work for him and his family. So he makes the journey to Cana of Galilee. And I looked it up on Google Maps. It's a walk of about seven hours from Capernaum. And he makes this long day's journey to beg for help from Jesus. This is a man who is desperate. He's suddenly discovered that all of his wealth, all of his status have not in the end protected the boy he loves from serious illness. And maybe because he's heard about Jesus and the water into wine at the wedding a little while earlier, he goes on a quest to find Jesus, to see if he and his family can also receive this blessing of God's abundant life that was signified by water into wine at the wedding in Cana. And although the text doesn't explicitly say so, it's very likely that this royal official was also a Gentile, a non-Jew. Certainly in the parallel stories in Matthew and Luke's gospel, the man begging Jesus for help is a Gentile. He's a Roman centurion. Well, this story, it's, it's probably the same story through a different oral tradition. And I think it's not unreasonable for us to assume that he is also a Gentile. And if he is, then this story takes one step further. The trajectory we've already seen as we've been going through the gospel of the widening of God's mercy. From a Jewish wedding to a Samaritan woman, we now encounter Jesus speaking words of abundant life to a Gentile official in the royal household. And for the original readers of John's Gospel, the statement at the end of this little story that the man believed along with his whole household would have made sense to them in their context of a church that included not only Jewish followers of Jesus, but also Gentile converts as well. This gift of life that comes into being in Jesus is not restricted to one group to one nationality, to one religion, to one social class. It's not restricted to one age group. Rather, this is a gift of abundant life for all people, whoever they are. 
And it's a gift of abundant life welling up in people's lives like a spring of water gushing up from the ground, creating new life in the parched landscapes of the human soul. All of which is deeply symbolic, deeply spiritual, deeply mystical, and I'm sure deeply compelling, as you would expect from a sign of the kingdom in the Gospel of John. But in the midst of all of the symbolism, I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that this is also a story of a healing. It's the story of a young child at the edge of death. It's the story of a desperate father pleading for his child's life. And in a week where the world has watched another child die at the bottom of a well, as people desperately tried to save that life, I think it is a story that resonates with our world and the situation faced by so many people around the globe today. It's not just a child dying in an accident, tragic though that individual instance is. The statistics on infant mortality make depressing reading. On any average day, 15,000 children under the age of five die. That's currently coming in at about 4% of all live births do not make it to the age of five. And almost all of these are children dying of preventable causes. This is a much better statistic than estimates for the ancient world. As far as we can tell, in the ancient world, a quarter of all children born alive were dead before their first birthday. And nearly 50% of all live births would have failed to reach adulthood in the ancient world. That was the context in which this father is pleading for the life of his child. Bec the thing is, then as now, the distribution of child mortality was disproportionate to those living with poverty uh, facing a far greater risk than those with access to clean water and good food. The knock-on effect, of course, of child mortality in our world is deeply problematic. Parents consequently choose to have larger families if they suspect that a larger number of their children are going to die this then is something which negatively impacts opportunities for women and in fact it is in countries with higher infant mortality that population growth is also at its highest and female education is at its lowest and as we face pressures on the environment from an expanding global population Addressing infant mortality and consequently giving women education and the ability to make choices about family planning are key factors in addressing the impact of humanity on our planet. But even in a globally prosperous city such as London, inequality still affects issues of infant mortality. Did you ever see the version of the tube map that was released a few years ago, which showed how life expectancy changes in different areas? The average life expectancy for people born where I live at Canada Water is currently showing as 78. If you're born near Marble Arch, you can expect to live until you're 91 on average. The greatest disparity in life expectancy from the richest to the poorest areas of London 
is nearly 20 years. And of course, as with all life expectancy statistics, the key factor is not the age at which the average adult dies, although that is part of the story. It is also the number of children who die in infancy. And so when you hear of a country with an average life expectancy of less than 50, such as is currently reported in the African country of Lesotho, that does not mean that a person of 60 is a rarity. What it means is that a very large number of children have died in early life. And our story for today, of a rich man at his wit's end because his child is dying, invites us, I think, to reflect on the correlation between wealth and infant mortality and life expectancy, and to reflect on what it means for us to be proclaiming a gospel of life to a world where too many, far too many children never get their chance to live. Well, I certainly think we should resist any application of this passage, which suggests that someone who asks Jesus for healing, either for themselves or for someone else, will automatically receive it. Firstly, that patently isn't the way it works. And secondly, that would be to focus back on the sign rather than on what the sign is pointing to. This is not a story about Jesus miraculously relieving humanity of its responsibility to care for the poor and the vulnerable, replacing education and healthcare with a prayer ministry. Rather, I think it speaks to us of the care that Jesus has for those facing tragedy and of his desire for all, whatever their nationality, creed, colour or status, to receive the gift of life in all its fullness. In other words, it tells us that we cannot separate our spiritual and practical concerns. We cannot say that we long for people to receive life eternal if we do not also desire that they get to live life in all its fullness. This story directly challenges those forms of Christianity which focus on the spiritual to the detriment of the practical. We're not called to save people's souls for the hereafter so much as we are called to save people's lives in the here and now. And this is a recurring theme in John's Gospel. To put the technical theological term on it, it's called realised eschatology. It's about how our hope for the future has to become realised and real in the present if it is to have any meaning. John's Gospel constantly takes us back to this idea that the benefits of following Jesus are more about today than they are about some unspecified otherworldly future. And in the desperation of this wealthy official at the sickness of his child, we're reminded that in the end all of us are mortal and that those of us with means and resources to keep healthy into old age are really in no way more deserving of our good fortune than those whose place of birth con condemns them to a different prospect. So this passage calls us to compassion, to action for justice, and to following the example of Jesus, who took action at a distance to bring life to a child he had never met and in all likelihood never would meet. Jesus didn't go to Capernaum to bring that child back to life personally. 
Rather, he spoke words of life from afar, transforming the life of a stranger and their family. And I wonder if here we find the practical action that we can take arising from this story. What does it mean for us to do what Jesus did? To care for the child that is dying over there, who we have never met, who we never will meet. As a church, we have long supported Christian aid and they have recurring campaigns to address issues of child mortality. And as we close our reflection on this passage uh, for this morning, let me just share a story from one of those campaigns which ran a couple of years ago. And we'll let these words challenge us to continue our generous and life-giving support to those who bring life to children around the globe. This particular project was a partnership for improved child health and it ran in Nigeria until just before the pandemic. Christian Aid say, every year hundreds of thousands of children under the age of five in Nigeria do not live to their fifth birth birthday due to preventable childhood illnesses such as malaria, pneumonia, diarrhea and severe acute malnutrition. Most under five deaths occur in remote, hard to reach communities where caregivers are faced with physical, social and financial barriers to access health services. Christian Aid through this project has empowered communities to take ownership of their own health by improving knowledge and health seeking behaviour, giving hope in despair and saving children under five who face imminent death due to barriers of access to take and uptake quality health services. Christian Aid Week itself will be coming up in May. There are always opportunities to give to support their work through our here at Bloomsbury uh, and directly. And as I was reflecting on this passage, I just came to the conclusion that I wanted to give thanks to God for Christian Aid, Christian Aid and other aid agencies like them. And to challenge us here at Bloomsbury to once again hear the call to be partners with them in the life-giving work that they do, bringing the gift of life in all its fullness to those over there who we will never meet, who need it the most. Creator God, source of life and love, we give thanks for the beauty of this day and for the company of those assembled in our sanctuary and online. Thank you for the breezes of change, clearing our heads and bringing fresh ideas. May they cleanse our minds of the oppressions and isms that divide us. Thank you for the flame of hope, the heat of righteous anger, the warmth of compassion and the fire of commitment. May they bubble the cauldrons of transformation. Thank you for oceans of love, rivers of connection, tears of relief and pools of serenity. May healing waters flow over us and through us and among us bearing down the sharp rocks of despair to bring joy in the morning. 
Thank you for the good earth beneath us, around us and within us. May we take this clay and co-create a new realm of justice and beauty. God of mercy, spirit who makes peace out of war, who wanders with refugees and keeps vigil with, with children detained at borders. Holy healer in hospitals and shelters and schools and homes, may your love be balm for all the hurt. May your truth be present in offices of power. Many times we thought the ark was bending towards justice. Many times we saw it happen in courtrooms and in streets, in the hearts of people creating their own liberation. Many times we've also doubted. For those of us this morning who doubt, who despair that brokenness and suffering and war may win, remind us of the small mercies, the tiny triumphs. Remind us that hope does dwell in this world. Creator God, source of life and love, Help us each day to stand for the diverse unity of the body of Christ and all creation. We offer our prayers together with all the holy names of God. We offer our prayer together with Christ our Lord. Amen. So go into God's world with love, hope, joy and faith in your hearts. And may the blessing of Almighty God, Creator, Redeemer and Sustainer be with you all today and forevermore. Amen.